Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Well, morning, Matt, and uh, hey, thanks for the coffee and the pastry. No worries. It was a great start to an early Saturday yep. morning, so sure was. really appreciate that. Well, we uh, listeners, we're continuing on Thrive Deeper as we look at our, uh, through the book of uh, Jeremiah, and uh, last week, or last time, we got up to chapter 5, I think it was, and we're going to try to kick through from chapter 6 of Jeremiah through to, to chapter 15 today. Mm. But before we do, Matt, I found it's really interesting as I've been reading through this particular passage, how uh, th- what we're reading in Jeremiah is kind of connected to what we've been talking about in our Perspectives podcast, where we've mm. been looking at the challenges of life today and yep. how our Christian worldview should shape our response yeah. and our and our and our purpose and everything in a world that's you know in in some ways not a lot different to what that's we're right. reading about here in Jeremiah. Yeah, and there's some key some key things that you really can't understand in these texts unless you get the worldview yeah. uh, that this is coming from. And I, yeah, I thought the same thing. It was, you know, things like, we'll talk a little bit about corporate confession and yes. things like that. It's like, yeah. how is that possible? Well, in, in our sort of individualistic way of thinking, it doesn't make sense. But mm. in a, you know, in a Christian world, a biblical worldview, yeah. it, it makes a whole lot more sense. So, yeah, really encourage listeners to get across and listen to perspectives because that big picture biblical worldview not only helps you navigate the thought world of scripture yeah. but uh, you know there's there's a thought world that scripture actually sets up for us to mm. navigate the world that we live in yeah. and it's still applicable yeah and so with, that's what we discuss in yeah, that uh, thrive perspective and, I mean, and, and again just looking at this passage now things like uh, suffering you know yeah. uh, as we hear about Jeremiah's suffering but but then also you know the prosperity of the wick what, yeah. what seem who seem to be the why does God let that happen while yeah. seemingly good people are so it, yeah really encourage you if you haven't tuned into thrive perspectives you can find that on your favorite podcast platform yeah. or uh, head to thrive today.tv now matt jeremiah chapter 6 to 15 a uh, little bit of historical perspective first yeah. of all for our for our listeners um this is situated in the larger historical context of the ancient kingdom of judah during the late 7th and early 6th centuries bc yep. obviously um, the nation was facing pretty turbulent times, political instability, there was religious turmoil, uh, there was a looming threat of invasion from you know powerful empires, yep. Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire, obviously. In the late 8th century, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel mm. and uh, deported many of its inhabitants in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem as its capital, managed to maintain its independence for a little bit of time, but it yep. too faced uh, a threat. And that's kind of where we pick this up right now. The, the events that we're going to sort of pick up as we lead into this, and we're not, you know, we're not going to go linearly, but but as we lead into this, it's during the reign of Jehoiachin. Let's say that again, Jehoiachin. <laughs> Jehoiachin, yeah. Uh, and that's uh, it, kind of the, the, the reign where it is. And You know, and, the funny thing about the name, Stu, is that when – uh, when I went to to Israel and w- with the, our Jewish guide there, you know, she kept saying the names like biblical names, and and I, you know, I said, "What? Who, who's that?" I just felt like I, all right, and and then I would realize, oh, actually, you're saying it the correct way. I, I you know, I realized that for all this time, there's a whole lot of biblical yeah. names. Uh, that I've been saying the wrong way. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, Nahum, we say, you know, the prophet yep. Nahum, we talked about that in an earlier episode. Yeah, we did. You know, it's something, something more like Nahum or something yeah, like that, yeah, you know. Yeah. 
so anyway, well, whenever I we got, give it our best shot. That's right. Whenever Stu. I got up to do Bible readings at church and the odd names, I just skipped over them because I knew everyone else was reading, I, reading along. Yeah, anyway. I, I always I always <laughs> say to my preaching students, just sound confident when that's you right. say them, <laughs> and then everyone else will think they're wrong. That's right. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that's kind of where we're at in this, and I'd have to say, Matt, as I've you know been reading through chapter six through to, to, to fifteen, preparing for our, our chat today. Man, it's it's pretty heavy going, you know, yep. to some degree. It's like it feels like, man, we've heard that so many times. Yep. You know, this is all doom and gloom. We know. Do you need to keep? Do you need yeah. to keep saying it to us? It's you know, very, so. it's very repetitive, isn't it? And I think a key to really reading this, and this is what I would recommend. First of all, is to appreciate the thing that. I think is great about prophetic oracles is that it's very direct divine discourse. Like it's 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 a very direct address of God. Right. You know, whereas um, in in various other scriptures, you know, like the letters of Paul, for example, mm. it's yes, it's divinely inspired, but it's it's what you would ref- it's a kind of deputized what you might refer as it's sort of deputized discourse. So it's like and and certainly <coughs> Paul is doing that with his divine authority and and under the inspiration of the Spirit, but it's very much filtered through. Paul and and yeah. in, in yeah. his and and it's the same with uh, and obviously you know the sayings of Jesus is very very direct, but the great thing about the prophetic oracles is this sort of direct outpouring of the heart of God mm. and and it's just dictated I right say, it's down like dictation yeah exactly. it's yeah. Uh, and you know I think that makes it really special and so as you're reading this as I said in the last episode Stu mm. is to get a sense of the heart of God here. And the grief of God, really, and and which flows from the love of God. So I know it sounds like there's a lot of anger, but this isn't this isn't a frustrated tyrant, you know, that just wants to get his, get his way and just you know, bad tempered and and can't wait to just kill everyone. Yeah. No, no, this is actually flowing from the it's the grief of God flowing from the love of God for His people, and and actually that comes through so clearly in Jeremiah, you know, his his love for this people, and, and yet there's this necessity to actually judge one generation to save yeah. the next. Yeah. I'm going to have to judge this generation to save the next mm. uh, because God is thinking corporately of his people here. That's mm. also, this is where the worldview thing is difficult for mm. us because he's thinking of his people as a whole and all of the people are going to be judged. And there were many wonderful, you know, wonderful people. And, and yet they're all still going to go into exile, a godly uh, person yeah. like Daniel and his mates Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, it's it's a heart rending thing yeah. for them to be taken into Babylon, made into eunuchs. May I say? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Let's just think about that. Mm. And they're in captivity away from their land. Like, and yet they responded to Josiah's res- revival and Jeremiah's preaching, and yeah. and these are godly people. And yet, so everyone, in a sense, is going to bear the price. is going yep. to pay the price. You know, for for the generations of sin. Because remember. The tipping point is around the time of Manasseh, where you know, according to the writer of Kings, uh, and in fact, Jeremiah God, God says, actually says it. <clears throat> that's yeah, right, Jeremiah. In, in Jeremiah, it's yep. because of the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh yeah. uh, he says at one point in this portion, actually, mm. he says, you know, this is going to happen, and and there's an inevitability uh, about that uh, because idolatry is so entrenched in this nation that you're all going to go into exile, even the mm. good ones. But the godly people are going to carry with them the seeds. Of the of the ancient faith, you know, he talks about the ancient faith here, um, and and there's going to be a wonderful revival in exile, partly as a result of reading the words of Jeremiah. Of course, Daniel, we know, reads the words of Jeremiah, and it leads to that wonderful prayer in uh, Jer- in Daniel chapter nine. So, the ex- even though no one was listening to Jeremiah, or certainly no one was taking heed of Jeremiah when he first 
brought yep. these words, but yep. in in the exile they're starting to yep. pay attention, and and that leads to something wonderful. So you know that's that's the, the first thing I think that's great about these oracles. The, the, the other thing I think is good to do is just is to note the patterns. You know, like what I do. You know, I mean, I, I read the Bible on my iPad, and so I, I sort of color code patterns and and it's it's a way of of recognizing things about the text and you know what are the imperatives here and what are the and you know and i also an interesting feature of this that i note too is the dialogue elements do i don't know if you notice that yes um and so i you know i even color coded that like what's you know where is jeremiah speaking and and his struggle and i you know i i got a lot from that i it was very moving dialogue, yeah. actually, that Jeremiah has. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. You know, there is there is a dialogue here between Jeremiah and God, and, and at one point we'll we'll get towards that at the end of this chat, probably where Jeremiah's kind of appealing to God to go, no, please don't do this. You know, there is a dialogue between them. God responds to Jeremiah there. But, yeah, because yeah. he's having to bring pretty heavy words. Ex- exactly right. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's difficult. So I think it's important as we read through this. So I found it for me anyway important to read through this, not just as words of someone sort of spelling out something but to understand this is emotional dialogue this is someone talking about how they feel and the frustration and god kind of who who has this covenant relationship um with these people is feeling like i feel like i've done everything and yet still you know and yet still you want to instead turn to a an idol you know a a piece of wood that that can do nothing Um, yeah that's right and and you can understand that yeah yeah that that's an important point to you and maybe uh, up front, that context, the covenant context, is actually yeah. a real key for understanding these prophetic oracles. That's mm-hmm. the other thing, because this is not just God bringing charges against them; just about general moral crime. I mean, there is that yeah. uh, the injustice and yeah. and you know oppression of the poor, and, and you know there's that sort of thing. But actually, the key problem here is a breaking of the covenant. Mm-hmm. That's and and that's important to understand that. So it has this relational background, and that's the thing that grieves God. Is is that it's something like a marriage. Uh, it's not just, you know, we might hurt each other, you know, in various ways and we might have cause to apologize. But, you know, with my wife, there's also the background of the marriage relationship and certain commitments that we've made to each other. And that makes the issues go a little bit deeper. And it's a little bit like that with here. When, when in the context of a covenant where certain vows have been made uh, to live in a certain kind of relationship, um, that forms a background to this because there's a, been an element of betrayal. That's right. Uh, and, and so there's a expectation of exclusivity in the same as marriage. And in fact, uh, marriage is often used as a way of describing the covenant that God made with his people Israel. Um, it's a metaphor that's used often and in terms of uh, Israel's betrayal is often pictured in terms of you know, marriage betrayal. So that's a very important background. So um, it was, they were meant to be, you know, exclusively devoted to Yahweh and, and yet they broke that covenant. And even, and even in the, in the portion that we're going to look at today, God refers back to the sense of, you know, obey my commands so that it will go well with you and I can walk with you. And that was very much part of the covenant as they entered the promised land in reality. So, yeah. And the commands as well, again, because we, we tend to think very moralistically in our, in one sense, that that's valid, but the thing here is that it's all a relational issue. It's yeah. relational, and, yeah. and the the keep my commandments feature is 
also relational. It's not just do this because this is morally right, and mm. which is true. That's that's mm. valid. But it's more than that. It's do this because this keeps you in alignment with me. If we're going to walk together, then you need to be set holy as I am holy. That yeah. was the, the repeated injunction. Be holy as I am holy. So if you're going to walk with me, we've got to keep in step, in sync. So the not keeping the commandments was more than just a moral transgression. And there are places where, you know, God charges the nations with, yes. you know, their immoral acting, their violence and the cruelty and so forth. But mm. with Israel, it was there was another level to this. It was mm. the concern here is relational. Mm. It's by not keeping his commandments that they have gotten out of step with God and yeah. therefore betrayed, you know, broken that, that covenant, essentially a marriage covenant. Yeah. yeah. And, and a, step, a step above that, I think, is those those commands aren't they're just to be rules. It's because also it's relational, but it's because God wants what's best for us. And he knows that by obeying those yeah. rules, we will have our best. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, yeah. So this, this is the, this is the context also for the problem of, of idolatry. And it'd be worth talking a little bit yes. about this because this, yeah. you know, this gets uh, a lot of air and attention here. And it's difficult for us as modern readers to kind of empathize with the issue here. You know, because we just, it's easy for us to read this and think, oh man, you stupid people, why are you? It's also interesting to note that right up until the exile, that idolatry is a big, big issue for, for God's people. After the exile, though, idolatry disappears as an issue. It's, it, it doesn't, you don't see this really come up again. Uh, it's, it's, they have other issues. And so even the, the prophets, the post exilic prophets, address things like their priorities. Uh, but it's not the same. It's not idolatry as it was before. It's mm. like, in, in a way, the, the exile, in a sense, cures them of idolatry. But it doesn't. And this is the interesting thing. It doesn't take away the relational problems, though, in, in one or, or the tendency to uh, for the relationship to be broken. Yeah. Right. Because the human heart is the human heart, and before the exile and after the exile, the human heart is the same. This is the reason I'm making this point, Stu, is because this is a key for us to understanding the issue. You know, the, the key with idolatry really is about who are you going to trust? Are, are you going to trust me, or are you going to trust these idols? You know, uh, after the exile, it's still the same issue because prophets like Haggai and Zechariah are addressing the fact that these people. Uh, building their houses and trying to get their their livelihoods established, and the temple of God lies in ruins, ruins right? Yeah. And they're saying, guys, guys, hang on, who are you putting first here? Yes, you know, on. because you're you know you're establishing your sort of economic, uh, trying to establish economic st- stability and and get yourselves all sorted. And and this is where I think this is, it's, you know, where we can be, you know, indicted for the same kind of relational. Totally. Uh, you know, yeah. Relational issues with God because it's really about, okay, who are we, tr- who are we really trusting here? Almost our plan A is our plan and plan B is God if yeah. our plan doesn't work out. Yeah. You know, that's right. Often, too often. The, the, the specific issue, though, and, and in chapter 10, it says here, hear, hear what the Lord says, uh, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. So, in, in the ancient world, you know, everything that happened, in, you know, in the stars or the sky, you know, the, I mean, was, some kind was of, all kind yeah. of, some kind of omen, right? Mm. And, and there were particular uh, people who were able to read those, you know, omens and interpret them and even, you know, the practice of uh, ecstasy, which is the cutting open of animals and mm. 
you know, the diviners and so forth. And no one in the ancient world did anything without consulting the the, the sort of the oracles or the, you know, the, the priests or the whatever priests and, they were of their, yeah. of their and, um And so, you know, he's addressing that. And so they're wanting to do this as well. Like, well, yes, uh, we'll consult Yahweh and we'll and you know we'll go to the temple and tick those boxes, but we still want to consult the omens and and make the sacrifices. And it, so it goes on to say, for the practices of the people, peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter like a scarecrow in a cucumber yeah, field. Yeah, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because so he's almost mocking. Uh, the you know establishment of these idols, mm. and then it goes down in verse eleven to say this is again chapter ten. Yeah, uh, these gods who, tell them this: these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by His power, and He founded the world by His wisdom, and stretched out the heavens by His understanding. So the background to this is that so they believed in territorial gods, gods associated with things like the weather. Pat so Baal was the god of the storm. Mm. Um, and if and important you, to say too that it was a very common thing. Nations all, you know, oh, everyone. It, it's yeah. not like having these false these idols or these gods yeah. was an unusual thing. This was the main thing. This yeah, was that's what right. most people had. Yeah. Each each group of people or nation or tribe had its yeah. own gods. So this is not like it's an odd thing that the people of Judah are doing. In the sense, uh, they're yeah. having to fight back against popular culture yeah, in reality. That's right. Yeah. And so you, so in their thought world, mm. they took it for granted that everything that happens, that the strings are being pulled somehow in the in the heavenly realms. realms. Now now there's an there's an aspect of of truth to this. I mean yes. I mean an aspect of truth. Paul yes. talks about the principalities and powers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? Mm. And he talks about it there being a spiritual battle and so so there are things going on in the spiritual realm that affect what is happening in uh, in let's call it the physical realm for lack of a better word. Yes. So there's an element of truth to that. But they felt like if things are going to go well, then we need to Hedge have this bets. transactional uh, hedge our bets and have have these transactional relationships with these territorial gods, yeah. or, or these gods of various phenomena like you know fertility, which is the Ashtoreths, yep. you know the ones that we hear about most in scripture the, are the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and mm. the Ashtoreths were fertility gods. Mm. So if you wanted fertility for your family and for your flocks and Fields. herds, yep. then you had to uh, pay obeisance to the Ashtoreths. Baal was the god of the storm. The, this part of the world is very dependent on seasonal, the seasonal weather. Mm. If you got one season weather, and, and drought is an issue here at yep. one point, if, you, yep. if, if the rains didn't come that year or not enough, you were in big, big trouble. You face famine and death. So th- these pe- so they, they're, living, they're living fairly close to nature and they're very dependent on these weather patterns. So that's something a bit different to us. And they also believe that these weather patterns are completely dependent on these yeah, gods. These gods. Right? So, you know, you're just not going to risk this. You know, this is this is the temptation here because right. they they feel so dependent on that you know on, on the immediate issues of agriculture and flocks and herds. And all along God's saying, "No, you can trust me with this, right? Yeah, You've got yeah. to trust me with this. Don't turn to the Baals and the Asterisks. Uh, I will bless this is why the blessings in Deuteronomy uh pertain God's says to them, you know, if you trust me, I will give you fertility and your crops will abound and your flocks and herds will abound. 
you know, it's not a guarantee of wealth, health, and prosperity, and that gets read out of context today mm-hmm. um, by Christians. It's actually God saying, I want you to trust me, not the Even bales and the, the, yeah. the asterisks yeah. uh, for this. Okay, yeah. I'm going to look after you. I will give you your daily bread, to use that, to use that idea that Jesus puts into the, his prayer. So that's the temptation for these people. It's, it, it was very difficult for them not to do it. Like it really, it really felt like something like, you know, if, you know, for those who, you know, as, as we should, you know, we, you know, when you contribute to the life of your church and you tithe, for example, you think, oh man, like 10%, what could I do with it? You know, there's yeah. so much else yes. I could do. And, and you just got your immediate, your immediate needs in view. But there's a bigger thing. God's saying, no, I want you to trust me. I yeah. want you to orient your life around trust, trust in me for this. Yeah. And yeah, that preoccupation with, you know, those immediate needs and what they need to do. Creating to, our own safety yeah, net just in case God doesn't right. show up. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's yeah. an issue that sits behind this. And, and, and I think it's important that we, we recognize that we do face similar oh, things in different ways. Absolutely. And, and the issue of trusting God, which is really the ultimate relational issue. You know, Jesus yes. says, I want yeah. you to come to me like little children. I want you to be like little children, mm. uh, trusting me like that. Because this is the kind of relationship that God, your father wants yeah. with you. Yeah. And, and even the very first question, did God really say that? Yeah. That's a question it's, of trust. It's a question, a question of trust. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Paul makes the point in his letters, it was always faith that was the main issue. It wasn't about keeping a moral or ceremonial law. This mm. is an issue in the New Testament, you know, because the Jewish people came to feel, well, if we tick all the boxes of the law, and even here you see that that's a problem, you know, ah, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you know. They're going through all the motions of, yeah, of that's uh, right. you know, following all the, the, the worship traditions, I yeah. guess, and, and sort of, and again, just the same as they're doing with the other gods, uh, yeah. just to keep that's that right. God happy yeah, as well. Yeah. And, and that is something that is similar in the post-exilic period. It's, mm. it's you know, you do, you tick the, tick the boxes and you keep the laws and, and even, you know, at their best, you know, the, the concern certainly for, you know, Jesus and the New Testament writers is the concern there is, no, no, I'm not looking for just box yeah. ticking religion. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually looking for relationship here, and that is trust. Mm. So that's why it's by faith. The righteous will live by faith. You know, Paul mm. makes this point again mm. and again and again. Mm. And it's not that faith excludes works of the law. No. I mean, faith expresses itself in keeping alignment with God and keeping alignment with God means doing what God says, like just trust me, just yeah. live this way, trust me. It's all about trust. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, it's easy for us today to feel like what makes us a Christian. Uh, and, and I can say this because many years ago, this was probably me. I go to church, but my Monday to Saturday is much yep. the same, but but yep. I, I'm still going to go to church on Sunday. Yep. I've done my, yep. you know, I've ticked that box. But in fact, what what really God's looking for from us is how what we hear from him yep. as we read his word during the week, hopefully not just on Sundays, and we hear his word through teaching and we worship together on Sundays, is that shapes the week absolutely, and our life going forward. That's right. Because that we have to ask the question, what is the thing that really distinguishes us yeah. from everyone else? And it has to come back to the relationship. It's about who you ultimately trust. Yeah. And of course, it's which purpose, what agenda. And, and I mean, that flows out and then what agenda are you serving and and uh, you know, and of course, there's a completely different worldview, and that's a very important thing that we're speaking to in the Thrive Perspectives podcast. But all of that flows from the fact that we have this relationship with trust with God, 
And, you know, it's gestures of trust, you know, like I used in the example of tithing. For me, that's, that's an important gesture because it's, it's an act of worship that actually costs me something. It's actually yeah, different. Yeah, like most yeah. people would think, man, you're crazy. Why would you, yeah, you know, to, yeah. to, to, to make a gesture like a gesture of sharing, you know, with your community like that? It's like, that's crazy, you know, but well, you know, for me, that's good because it's it's one respect in which we actually differ from other. We don't just yes. live for ourselves. Yes, we live for a greater purpose, and uh, and and we we live as a community in relationship, in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus. And so, gestures of faith are actually really important. And again, but it's important to say that's it's not just about ticking a box. No, that's right. For me, practices like that. Uh, about me saying, Lord, I trust you. Mm. This is a, you know, it's, mm. it's a gesture of trust and a gesture of worship. Mm. I trust you and I acknowledge that you are faithful. Mm. Totally. And it's easy to be obedient perhaps <clears throat> when it doesn't cost you anything or, mm. or it doesn't seem to cost you much, but faith is really tested when it is going to cost yeah. you. And, uh, so we see, we see a lot of uh, idolatry. So, uh, Jeremiah speaking or God speaking through Jeremiah to the people about the fact that he's, he's not really interested in their false religion, them going to the temple and going through the motions, as you just yeah, said, and ticking well, all the boxes. It's an interesting one mm. because by this stage, the temple had become a bit of a good luck charm. Yes. And, you know, when you go back to when Solomon established the temple, you know, his prayer is that whenever your people pray to this place, mm. it's interesting because even, of course, during the exile, you see, you know, Daniel praying towards Jerusalem. He faces Jerusalem. Mm. And that's, that's, you know, that goes back to this idea and it, you know, that you see at work already in Solomon's prayer once he establishes the temple. He talks about people praying towards this place. And th- the importance of that, it, it's essentially the same as when we pray in Jesus' name. It's like, well, why do we think we can get, have anything from God? Why do we, you know, why do we think that we're even worthy to come into the presence of God? Well, it's actually not because we're worthy. It's because God has paid for our sins yeah. and because he has bound himself through Jesus Christ to us. That's what the temple symbolized, right? The temple symbolized what God did to God's, reconcile his people to yeah. himself, the God's sacrifices. So it wasn't it wasn't just a sort of good luck charm or mm. a, a temple in the sense of in the ancient world. That's where God lived place. as yep. such. Yep. Um, it was a, it was kind of symbolically, uh, in, in some symbolic sense, the dwelling place of God in the sense of being some kind of symbol of focal point. Yeah, focal point for the relationship with God, because the temple illustrated how, as a sinful humanity, reconciled with a holy God, the temple basically showed the way. And so, praying towards the temple is an acknowledgement of what God has done to bind us to Himself. And it's also a, a reminder of the covenant, therefore, as well. You know, it's a sort of symbolic reminder. We are in covenant with God because he has purchased us, and this is what the sacrifice symbolized. He has purchased us to himself, yep. and so we are bound to him. And so, you know, Solomon in his prayer says, you know, whenever your people pray towards this place, you know, would you hear their prayers? Now, at this stage, it's that's used as like a magic thing. And unfortunately, you know, I think it's the same. It can be the same a little bit with the in Jesus name. It's like if I throw the name of Jesus out, it's like some some kind of magic incantation that, you know, if I use the name of Jesus, somehow that'll magically sort of change things. And it's a little bit similar to this. Actually, no, no. Praying in Jesus name means that I don't. It's not just about me. Yeah, I represent, right. you know, I'm in Christ and I represent Christ in this and the purpose of Christ. And so... You know, it's a much richer idea and it's a much more relational idea. As you say, the promises of God are for the purposes of That's God. That's right. Yeah. 
And so, look, by this stage, yep, they, they, they oh, we've got the temple, we'll be fine. You know, it's, yeah. it's our like good luck charm. You know, nothing will happen because this is the dwelling place of God is in our midst. Well, Stu, as we know, in 586 BC, uh, the temple is completely destroyed by the Babylonians, and yeah. that's what Jeremiah yeah. predicts. Now, at this stage, they can't conceive that that could ever possibly happen. There's no way that, that God would allow such a thing. Well, God does allow such a thing. Interestingly, actually, the Babylonians probably would not have gone that far if the Jews wouldn't have held out against them for so long. Uh, you know, if they would have surrendered the city yeah. and gone into exile, like Jeremiah told them to. But, you know, those last uh, kings, um, you know, Jehoiachin and, yep. and Zedekiah, they just rebelled against the king of Babylon. You know, they ended up being a long siege. They just were sick of, you know, the Babylonians yep. were so infuriated yep. that they absolutely leveled the city completely. Mm. You know, that possibly would not have happened if they would not have, if they would have listened to the words of Jeremiah and yeah. just surrendered and gone into exile. But of course they think no that could never happen. And God, you know, God would never allow his people. You know, we're the people of God and there was a sense of entitlement, which is why they're so hostile to Jeremiah. This mm. is this feels to you know Jeremiah's oracles felt to them like a kind of heresy. Yes. No. Jeremiah, this is where the people of God. You don't get it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you don't get it, Jeremiah. We would never, you know, God would never allow us to be, you know, destroyed by the by these people, as you say we will be, and taken out, you know, into exile. And but, you know, Jeremiah is saying, no, no, this is the point of his oracles. No, yeah. you, are, it is going to happen. Yeah, and it's going to happen because you broke the covenant. Yeah. you're not in a right relationship with God. So, you know. And Jeremiah, of course, even cops it from his own hometown, Anathoth, where uh, in chapter 11 now, where, you know, God's even talking about his village and even speaks to his mother and his father and how everyone just has rebelled against him and, and is trying to kill him, basically. Yeah. Poor old Jeremiah, who's trying to be obedient <laughs> yeah. here, uh, is really feeling the, the pressure of that. Um, a, another interesting thing, just before we move forward beyond that, and listeners, we're just sort of picking some key themes out here as we, we work through this period, but interesting to the mention of the Valley of Hinnom and and then uh, Topeth, I think it is, yeah. which is actually a place inside the valley. Obviously, it had fairly significant historical um, value in that it, this is where a lot of the worship to the foreign gods were in particular child sacrifice yep. to the deity of Moloch, I yep. think it was. And obviously that, that valley became a bit of a symbol of spiritual corruption and judgment. Interesting that during the time of Jesus um, and in subsequent mm. centuries, that valley was actually used as a garbage dump yep. um, and where the city's refuge and waste yep. and everything was discarded and fires burnt there yep. almost continually as yep. they were disposing of, of rubbish, which kind of speaks to a little bit yeah. to what God's prophecy of what that place will turn to be. Um, well, it was where the corpses yes, of the right. sin offerings were were thrown just, into yes. the valley of Ben Hinn, and and that becomes known as Gehenna. Yes, and Gehenna is the word that's used uh, essentially for what we would call hell. Yes, uh, and it's it's you know uh, our our idea of of hell unfortunately has come to be a bit associated with the Greek idea of Tartarus, but. Um, you know, it, it, it was this idea of being shut out. That was essentially because it was yeah. the sin, you know, the carcasses of the sin offerings that were sort of cast into this place of uncleanliness in a sense. Mm. Um, so, yeah. But there was an interesting part there where, where God actually responding in, in his word to Jeremiah says, that wasn't even in my mind, you know, the child sacrifice. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, that's an interesting response yeah. to that. You know, I didn't even think of that almost. It's like it just wasn't in my mind. Uh, as though somehow they thought 
that that was what God was requiring of them. I'm, I'm not really sure. It was just yeah. an interesting. Yeah, the, uh, the point of that I think is is God is conti- continually underlining the fact. In fact, from Genesis 22 onwards, with the the story about mm. Abraham and and, and, and mm. you know taking Isaac up to Moriah and potentially sacrificing him, essentially God is saying, I never. You know this. This in the ancient world, the, the greatest sacrifice that you could offer to a god was the offering right, of your child. firstborn of your yeah. child or children, and was a terrible, terrible thing. And and unfortunately, quite common in the ancient world. You know, because if you really wanted to buy off the gods, that's what you gave. That's that. You yeah. know, and essentially, you know, one of the things probably that's happening in Genesis twenty-two is God saying, "No, I never, never want this." You know, I have provided a, you know, I've provided a lamb. And of course, throughout Deuteronomy, you know, God says, "I absolutely abhor yeah. child sacrifice. Never ever do that child sacrifice." Mm. And so that's the it never entered into my mind is is a is a way of saying this was never part this, of this the plan. This was never part of the plan. Yeah. It is yeah. it is very very far from God to ever even begin to want something like that. And and it becomes a distinction between the Canaanite gods and the gods of the nations mm. to Yahweh is mm. that Yahweh never was as as he says, never even entered my mind that mm. that, that would be you know, it's it's in fact I don't know it's an abomination. Yeah. So you know that that is one element of the holiness, the separateness that, you know, of, of God. One of the interesting Features of this is the dialogue elements yes. in this. This is this is something that interests me about Jeremiah because it's very hu- there's there's a real humanity here. As much as there are oracles of God here, yet you get these moments uh, of, of and I you know I sort of color coded these as I love to do, and and actually right through these oracles you get these moments where you know for example in eight verse eighteen. You who are my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? Down in verse 21. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. He says in, in then the beginning of chapter 9, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Uh, down in verse 10, um, I will weep and wail for the mountains. And You know, he is... He's really struggling with this. Isn't you know he's not you know rubbing his hands, thinking yeah, go get him, God. And no, he's yeah. this is very difficult because he's really seeing that these things are about to happen. Yeah, and you know this is why they one of the reasons they Jeremiah is sort of known as the weeping prophet because he has this in a sense this terrible message to bring. Um, of course, there are, there are, there's plenty of oracles of hope here beyond that. But this generation is mm. uh, is fixed for this, judgment. pretty much for this judgment. Mm. And Jeremiah's not gleeful about this. He's really, really well, and he's part over of this. it. I mean, he's 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 there as well. Now, even though God promises later to to protect <clears throat> Jeremiah, he's yeah. still seeing and feeling. Oh, yeah, it's a sad. The, Jer- the story of Jeremiah is a sad story because I mean they all go into Babylon and. Yeah. Initially, he stays behind, but then he's taken back into Egypt. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, so back to Egypt, you know. So you know, chapter 12, where this dialogue goes on, where, where Jeremiah's kind of push, pushing back to some degree or bringing, bringing something to God about the problem of prosperity of the wicked, and is that where you were kind of heading next about yeah. this kind of, or one of these dialogues anyway? Which yeah, is, so you get a complaint, you yeah. know, that he's, because he's, you know, he's receiving these oracles, mm. uh, but at the same time, he's thinking, hang on, uh, and he says in, chapter 12 you are always righteous lord uh when 
I bring Even a case bring before case, you. Yeah. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Yes. Okay. That's <laughs> like, really, man, that's bold. Really bold. And desperate, I would suspect. Yeah. It, you know, it's a bit like, man, I feel like I've got nothing to lose here. Yeah. I need to challenge this. Now, the interesting thing is this is actually a little similar to the very first, can you think of what would be the f- the very first intercessory prayer in scripture is Abraham's pleading for yes, Sodom and Gomorrah correct. Um, in uh, Genesis uh, 18. And there actually, in that story, God announces judgment is coming upon the city and he reminds Abraham, I've called you to be a blessing to, you know, mm. like hint, hint, hint. I'm going to bring judgment on this. And, and it says, Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And he says, Lord, hang on. Would you wipe away the righteous with the wicked? You know, what if there are 50 righteous people in this city? And God says, okay, if there is 50 righteous, I won't say. So it's like God says that he will. And yeah. then he listens to Jeremiah and says, okay, I won't. And then Jeremiah, and then the number goes. And, and, in a, and the significance of that, that story is that the number gets less and less. What if there are... 45 what if there are 40 what if mm. and it you know shows god's willingness to you know answer prayers Prayer. and so yeah. in a sense there's a there's a similar complaint here lord what, you know why do the wicked wh- why do the wicked prosper mm. and 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 all the faithless live so it's it's a slightly different issue but it's still this issue of justice lord i would speak to you about your justice yeah um because and and in a sense and the answer of course is well ultimately they're not going to prosper yeah but it's interesting that uh, that there's still this this issue. Another thing that's interesting about this is that God says to Jeremiah, "Don't pray for this people." Yeah, that's <laughs> it's right. It's like, it? Oh, it sounds a bit exactly unforgiving. And in fact, he even goes on to say, even if Moses prayed, yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't change yeah, my mind. Yeah, um, that's right. He says in um, uh, in chapter fifteen. Yeah. Uh, just to have a look at that. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were yeah. to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And if they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death, those for the, yeah. to the, for the sword to the sword, those for starvation to starvation, those for captivity to captivity. So, uh, And then he says, um, I will send four kinds of destroyers against them, declares the Lord. Um, the sword... Uh, to kill and the dogs to drag away, the birds and the wild animals to devour and destroy. I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, Mm. son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. So there's this kind of fixed fate here, you know, those destined for death to death, those for the sword to the sword. And so he's saying, therefore, this is, this is going to happen because of what, because of the sins of the past, difficult uh, concept for us. So therefore he's saying, and this is the interesting thing about, about intercessory prayer is that intercessory prayer does need to be in accordance with the will of God. Because, that, you know, as in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, in a sense, God was inviting that prayer. Now, in the, in the end, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Of course, Abraham's concern was answered in the sense that Lot was saved yes. because he was concerned with Lot being living in that city. But here it's a little bit different. Here, God is saying, no, no, even if Moses and Samuel were to intercede, I wouldn't answer because actually their fate has been fixed. Uh, even the fate of those who are godly in this, they're also going uh, to suffer this same fate, that, you know, the exile and so forth. So it's difficult, but the, the idea here is, you know, in Exodus 34, you know, when God announces who he is and what he does, it's, you know, that he visits the sins of the fathers yes. upon the children yeah. to the third and fourth generation. Again, it's a difficult idea for us, and we do explore this a bit in our Thrive Perspectives podcast. 
but they didn't. There's not this individualistic way of thinking. Like the whole God is thinking about a whole people here, and what is necessary. You know, He's going to prune the vine right back to save the whole thing. And you know, one generation is going to suffer in order to preserve the future of God's people. And does this speak yeah. a little bit into into our collective uh, confession of sin? And you, yep. you know, you were talking a bit about when we started that we were going to touch a little bit on the sort of the corporate confession of sin. Yeah. Given you know, there's the corporate consequence of sin. So first of all, yes, very much the corporate consequence. That that's yep. that, that's kind of how it works. It's, there's a sense, you know, we see this with. For example, in Joshua seven, with the sin of Achan, yes, you know, one person sins, and and the whole nation exactly. is is punished because of the mm-hmm. sin of one, and that's because you know, and I mean, Paul kind of refers to this idea in Romans chapter five when he says, sin entered the world through one, you know, because when Adam sinned, all sinned that's in right. a sense. So it's not that all are held guilty in a sense for that sin, but there's some sense in which what the one does, everyone does. We're all sort of there's this sense of this interconnectedness well, we of suffer our humanity. The consequences of what that one did. Well, well, yes. yeah. I mean, but in but in a sense, I think it's even a little bit more than that. Okay. In the sense that the sin of one person is everyone's problem, not just because of consequences, but because it has this defiling effect on right. the unit of humanity. And because we automatically think in individualistically as isolated autonomous units, right. human beings as isolated autonomous units. Yet God created us to be in a relational network. You know, like one body is the mm. illustration that's used. You are one body, right? So that what happens to, to one it happens to everyone. Which is know? this picture of the church, of course, yeah. one body. That's one, right. One's a hand, yeah. one's if, a foot. One's that's a, right. If yeah. the toe gets injured, the yeah. whole body suffers. Yes. I mean, so the, so and and if so, if one part goes wrong, the whole thing goes wrong. And to push that illustration a little bit further, you know, if if my right hand does something bad, I don't say, oh, stupid right hand. No, no, it's <laughs> it's like I did so, yeah. and so there's this. Yeah. There's this sense of humanity as a unit, you know, right. and and certainly this is the way that they, you know, that what they thought in terms of God's people were really understood as a unit, and you know, this is what sits behind this a little bit, you know, because so you did so so the standard form of confession is you know Lord, you know we have sinned even as our fathers did, and and here also you get this corporate confession, mm-hmm. uh, you know Jeremiah prays these prayers, so chapter fourteen, 14 yeah. verse. Um, 20, um, it says, uh, we acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, Mm. and the guilt of our ancestors. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise. So this is Jeremiah praying this, and he's praying this on behalf of of all of the people, not only of that time, but he's asking forgiveness for the people of former times, because it's all one unit, you know, uh, even across the generations, it's one unit. And, And so that's this idea that God created humanity as this, as this one unit, you know, for relational connectedness. We're meant to be connected with each other and connected with God. And disconnection is a problem. You know, so these kind of prayers, I think, are immensely significant because they, uh, they recognize that element, that God is dealing with yeah. humanity as a whole. And, you know, even in our day, Stu, we... The way that the world is, we all we're all in the same boat here, right? If the if you know if the world goes through a, the storms of life, and you know we've we've wrecked this and we've wrecked that and we've wrecked a climate, well, we're all going to yes, bear exactly. the consequences yeah. in in some sense. Now, I, I think this yeah this element of corporate confession is very powerful actually because it promises to bring corporate redemption. 
uh, as well, in a mm. sense. Those are rich ideas and they need to be explored more. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's just a... But that, pa- that particular prayer of Jeremiah, or that request of Jeremiah's came exactly as a result of the fact that there was a massive drought and famine in the, yeah. in the land, uh, which was, you know, part of God's judgment as well. You know, people were starving. There was yeah. you know, scarcity of food and water and people were actually starting to cry. Because remember now at this point in time, we've got King Josiah yeah. in, in place and he's trying to bring around, restore the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the proper that's place right. of God and the nation. And so there's this starting to switch to recognize this, but it, it was already too late. Yeah. Uh, and so also, Stu, it's worth saying there's not a contradiction between no. like with prayers like this, you know, asking for forgiveness for God's people, you know, because I said before that there was an inevitability about yes. the coming judgment um, and that wasn't going to be staved off. Right. But God still wants his people to seek his forgiveness. And, yes. you know, and, and in, in fact, during the time of Josiah, you know, there was this time of repentance of turning back to God and yeah. and most people probably didn't but a core certainly a very important core of people including you know Daniel's generation yep. were, grew up in that time of revival and so uh, so they would still as I said they would still suffer those consequences but God would be with them through that uh, because they you know were reconciled to God. God's saying to Jeremiah, don't pray for this people, uh, because what he means is in terms of this coming disaster, because that's going to happen. That's, um, you know, that's inevitable. But, hey, he's still saying throughout these oracles, turn back to me. God is still saying, but turn back. You, you won't stave off disaster. But, hey, because of that disaster is coming, get yourself in a right relationship with me. Um, and so there's always that invitation throughout these oracles. It's hard not to sort of sense it, God's, but a little bit unforgiving in that place where Jeremiah's <clears> kind <throat> of pleading and pleading and pleading. And I think yeah. you've just spoken to that fact. Yeah, because you know? we can read it like that. It's like, oh, gee, uh, you know, God's kind of, yeah, he's not offering. It, it sounds like he's not offering forgiveness, but that's actually not true. What he, He's not prepared to sort of hold off the judgment. The judgment is necessary. Yeah. But there can still be forgiveness. Yeah. You know, so the things are still going to go down the tube. And, you know, we could still say in our time, I mean, all of the things that talks about the book of Revelation and the collapse of the world the world system and, mm. you know, coming Antichrist and all that sort of I mean, it's like we're not going to stave that that off. That that is all going to happen. But God is saying you can be reconciled to me. You know, still come back to me. There's Which an inevitability the about that thing, judgment. Yeah. Because that's an eternal thing. That's right. Yeah. And that's where, you know, these corporate prayers are important because, you know, we're calling people to be made right with God. What's coming is coming and it's inevitable. That's not going to be staved off. You know, we, we it's it's no point, you know, praying, Oh Lord, would you establish a you know political utopia, you know, in in our in this age? Because yeah. well we, we you know, we should pray for our, our leaders and pray that things would go well and, and, and we can sort of do that, but we can't pray in a way that just directly contradicts what the book of Revelation actually predicts. Yeah. I mean, I know that's very general and there are different mm. ways of interpreting that, but yeah. man, it looks like it gets rocky, gets pretty turbulent yeah. at some point. And I think the biggest focus for us is should be how we shine the light of God's faithfulness and, yeah. and grace in amongst yeah. the, the world that we live in right now. You know, let's be the people of God. Let's draw as many people uh, to him as we can through the way we live and our yeah. own gracious and righteous living, really. That's yeah. that's what we need to be doing. So, yeah. So similar, you know, isn't it interesting, Stu, that, that there are similar, it's a similar circumstance. In some senses, we're not in a dissimilar circumstance to Jeremiah. Not because, at all. You know, the New Testament does predict a coming time mm. of uh, of judgment uh, in in a number of different ways. And as I said, I know there are different ways of interpreting that. And uh, 
it certainly is evident that things are going to get turbulent and that, you know, the world system is going to fall and there's going to be an ultimately, you know, the new heavens and the new earth and so forth. And interestingly, if I can just say, interestingly too, if you look at Jeremiah and, and the, the persecution or the, the trouble he was facing for sharing this message, to some degree we see that polarization between yeah. the Christian church and the message it's trying to bring to, yeah, that's to right. the world and the culture that, yeah. that's becoming more and more black and white. Absolutely, um, and, yeah. and we need to be willing to accept that it's not going to be easy to, that's right. to, to be obedient and to speak the truth. That's it's right. going to get harder. Yeah, it's that, not a popular know? message yeah. because people want you to say, say positive things, you know, mm-hmm. and this is one of the issues here that Jeremiah criticizes the false prophets for saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Oh, it's all going to be fine. And uh, well, in terms of the world system, you know, John in his epistle says, do not love the world, right? Do not love the world because the world is going to pass away. Like, And he's talking about the world system. He's not talking about the physical space-time universe. Mm. Um, You know, it's going to collapse. And of course, in Revelation, which is also, of course, the revelation of John, you you know, you see that that happening. So there's this sense of preparation for that and and that's that's the coming future that sort of shapes and this is what's similar in a way it's what's similar it's that there's this impending collapse of the world system as it is but interestingly Stu, for the writers of the gospel they looked forward to that because they took to heart what John said, or, or, or they certainly embodied that, and uh, and they and, didn't love the world. They didn't. They didn't like it. We're not meant to like it, and mm. they looked forward to what God was mm. bringing about beyond that. And lest we think that that means, well, oh well, there's no point. We'll just wait for that to happen. The fact of the matter is, we're on mission. Oh yeah, and God is wanting us to reach as many people for Him before that time comes. Yeah. and that's got to be our focus. So the fact that we see the signs of these things coming, whenever that may be, and let's not yeah. get into that, but isn't it time for us to go, oh, well, it's a done deal. It's a time for us to be stepping up our activity in terms of reflecting Christ in this world and showing people there is hope. Exactly like Jeremiah. This is the the ministry of Jeremiah in many ways reflects the ministry of the church because we are called to be the prophets to the nations in this in the sense that that this is coming about and it should trouble us that people are deaf and blind to the things of God and that don't care and in that sense, we should be interceding for, like, you can't intercede to stave off uh, the inevitable. That's coming. You can't say, well, oh, Jesus, don't come again and judge the earth. No, no, actually, New Testament writers looked forward to that because they knew that that was necessary, because they looked at what was on the other side of that. That was their great hope. But in the meantime, they recognize, man, we should be troubled about the fact that people don't know God and, and, and they've got this wonderful opportunity to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so, like Jeremiah, they saw their lives as lives of purpose, of embodying and bringing God's message of good news to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. 